Greetings, fellow stargazers. I hope you guys are having a wonderful start to your April 5th. That is Tuesday, April 5th. Yep. Awesome. Just had to double check that for myself. Uh, well, um, hello. Welcome to another episode of Space Talk. I'm so excited to be here uh, because kicking off April with all of you guys and all the different space events that are going on is, I think, the best way to probably start off the month. And there are quite a lot of space events going on. Um, in fact, when I was putting together everything for my weekly transmission, uh, it took probably twice as long as it usually would because there are just so many more things that are visible this month. Don't necessarily ask me why, not quite sure, uh, but there just are. There's a lot more deep sky objects as well, so this is a wonderful opportunity for you to get a telescope or binoculars and plan some camping as the weather starts to get warmer. This way, you can possibly catch some of these really gorgeous, massive objects. Uh, deep sky objects are typically galaxies and different types of nebulae and star clusters. So um, you'll definitely want to catch some of these. Uh, now, before we kind of jump into some of the events going on, I just have a little short uh, public service announcement, just a little bit of a, an exciting announcement here. But um, I was in the process of filming a show uh, probably a couple months ago. I flew out to Los Angeles for a few weeks to film a show, and um, it just aired. So it's called Suppressed Science. And I am the host of the show. I'm so, so excited. This is my very first um, show that I've ever landed where I'm the official host of it. And it's called Suppressed Science because we're looking at different topics within the science industry that have maybe for one reason or another been suppressed by for some reason. So so some of the episodes we look at are like um, man and machine enhancements. So we got to kind of go to a few different really awesome labs around um, the kind of Los Angeles, so Calif South California area, got to test out really cool technology that is starting to basically enhance our human experience. Um, then you got a, another episode on the science of psychedelics and kind of looking at that because that is a very transforming industry right now um, and why it was for so long being suppressed um, and how it might be able to be used for other types of PTSD, medical purposes, etc. So we interview a ton of different researchers. We interview uh, different people that are working on this stuff and all different areas of, um, depending on what the episode is. So it's really, really, it was so much fun to film. Um, it's really exciting that it just aired. If you guys want to watch it, it is airing on Curiosity Stream. So Curiosity Stream uh, is a streaming platform. They also, if you're based in the UK or other parts of uh, Europe, I believe also South America, it is actually a television network. It's just called Curiosity. And it is strictly an educational content streaming platform. So it started with documentaries and has expanded to different types of TV shows, films, movies, etc. So if you guys want to check that out, you know, you can watch it on Curiosity Stream. It's called Suppressed Science. Uh, and Curiosity Stream is some really great, like really, really great shows on there, but also very affordable. Um, the, the, I think I paid maybe like $10 for the year. Um, of streaming. So definitely a, a good bang for your buck, uh, where I think Netflix is, I pay somewhere around 10 to $15 per month. So really a great, great platform. Um, there's a bunch of other really cool stuff on there as well. I've been, I've been checking out stuff about the James Webb Space Telescope and other things. But first four episodes just aired, and uh, there's going to be another four episodes that'll be airing pretty soon. So I hope you guys check it out. 
All right, moving forward, um, I went ahead. I'm not going to go over this definition with you guys, but for those who received my newsletter, you saw that astronomy word of the week was planet. And I chose that because of us talking about dwarf planets not too long ago. Um, so I just did that just because, you know, why not? Okay, let's go into our must-see celestial events. So this is for April 1st to the 7th of this year, 2022. And I grabbed, let's see, one, two, three, four specific things from Sky and Telescope magazine. Um, so full credit goes to them for this. Um, I did also, you know, usually literally take uh, the, the images that they use, credited them word for word as well. And then I have my own separate uh, stargazing events that I just looked up and thought would be pretty cool. So starting with April 2nd in the dawn sky. So this is 45 minutes before sunrise. You've got Capricornus, that constellation we've been looking at a lot uh, with that same trio of planets, Venus, Saturn, and Mars. Saturn and Mars are starting to get closer and closer together. So they're really starting to come close. Um, and so the, the specific description said, to the right of Venus in early dawn, Saturn will soon pass Mars. On Saturday morning, April 2nd, they're 1.8 degrees apart. That is less than two pinkies, pinky finger distances apart. Three days later on the morning of the 5th, they pass just 0.4 degrees apart. At the same time, uh, which is the early morning dawn sky. So moving into April 4th, Saturn and Mars are only 0.5 degrees apart for North America, almost at their closest together. The fainter star, two degrees below them, is Delta Capricorni. Magnitude of 2.8, so you can use binoculars um, if you wanted to try and check this out. This is facing southeast early in the morning, about 45 minutes before sunrise. Now for the evening, about 9 p.m., April 3rd to the 6th, looking west, you have the constellation Taurus, which you may be able to recognize by the bright red star Aldebaran. So that's Aldebaran, A-L-D-E-B-A-R-A-N. And you have the moon passing through this constellation as it also passes by the Pleiades open star cluster. Beautiful open star cluster you'll be able to catch. The moon goes from its crescent phase on April 3rd all the way up to its uh, close to its first quarter. So this would be a, uh, well, just, just about a waxing crescent um, up to, sorry, waning crescent. So it's growing. Waning is, is, is growing. Uh, sorry, no, I was right. I was right. Waxing is when it's growing. Waning is when it's shrinking. So it's, excuse me for that. It's approaching uh, its first quarter phase. So it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger from April 3rd, 4th, 5th, and 6th. And the waxing crescent moon here, it says, I should just read the description, <laughs> passes the Pleiades, open star cluster, Aldebaran, and um, the surrounding Hyades. And so this is a scene drawn for just after the end of twilight, around 9 p.m. local time. And then lastly, on the dawn on April 5th, you have got that Saturn and Mars closest approach. It's going to be early Tuesday morning, April 5th. So that was, that was this morning. Um, they are separated by, by about 0.4 degrees. So, and then from moving forward, they're going to start to get more and more separate apart from each other. 
So I hope you guys get to go ahead and catch those planets as well as uh, that constellation and that moon uh, transition. Now, so for some other uh, stargazing events, on April 2nd, Mercury was in superior conjunction at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. April 4th, Saturn passes 0.3 degrees north of Mars at 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And all month, you've still got a great view of M42, which is the Great Nebula in Orion. It's visible in the evenings just below the belt of Orion and those super bright stars, Rigel and Betelgeuse. Also all month, Mercury is visible in the constellation Aries just after sunset during evening twilight. However, if it's too far in the night, it won't be visible anymore. It is in the Aries constellation and this only is going to be visible for about an hour before it sets below the horizon. So it's pretty low already. If you wanted to catch this uh, planet and the constellation Aries, you'll, you will need a telescope or binoculars and elevation as well. You'll need to get higher up because it is right on the horizon. All right, let's move into our deep sky objects. On April 1st is the Sombrero Galaxy. I'm so sorry. This was, oh... I, I did such a bad job. I should have actually gone live here earlier, but I will still read this because it's pretty cool. Sombrero Galaxy. If you guys want to look up an image of it, it literally looks like a sombrero. Known as M104, it was visible in the high skies, so no obstruction should be expected unless you have clouds. At a magnitude of 9.0, you would need a binoculars or telescope, and uh, visible both in the northern and southern hemisphere. This was over your southeast horizon. Um, I, I, I think that reading this is, is it makes, me, makes me a little bit bummed out because I realized that uh, this, this happened in the past. So I'm going to go ahead and just skip it because uh, I wasn't able to uh, do this episode a little bit sooner. Um, and again, sorry, sorry about that, guys. And then April 4th, Messier 94. Uh, should, it might still be visible. Um, so if you wanted to try and catch us tonight... It is a spiral galaxy in the mid-northern constellation Canes Venatici. It's at a magnitude of 9.0, and you'll once again need some equipment to see this deep sky object, so binoculars or a telescope. In the North Hemisphere, it'll be visible all night. It'll become visible around uh, just around like 2048 Central Time, uh, and then 33 degrees above your northeastern horizon just as the sky starts to get darker. It'll then reach its highest point in the sky at about 1.31 a.m. This is 79 degrees, so almost 80 degrees above your northern horizon. So really, really high up. This is a perfect time to catch this. Um, and it'll be visible all the way until dawn twilight. So you really have the full night to catch this. Um, and then it'll be lost right when sunrise starts to happen. And for the southern hemisphere to only be visible to places that are located north of 28 degrees south latitude. So this is your latitude scale. If you don't know your longitude and latitude, you can head to geodatos.net. Really, really great uh, resource. I'll type that in the chat, geodatos.net. The, uh, hold on, autocorrect is... is keeps correcting me geodatos.net 
uh, really great way to, to, to see where your city is and what your longitude and latitude is in case you're not too sure. So for this uh, purpose, for Southern Hemisphere, I chose Panama because it is within that, that range of visibility. It starts rising about 7.44 p.m. local time at 21 degrees above your northeastern horizon, reaching its highest point of 57 degrees at about midnight. And this will be above your northern horizon. Then it'll be setting around 4.53, so just before 5 a.m. local time at 21 degrees above your northwestern horizon. Alrighty, so that is what you've got going on for this week. Um, there are a lot more coming up. I will definitely make sure I do the episode before the events are happening, the stargazing events are happening. Um, this way you guys can go out and check it out. Unless you are already subscribed to my newsletter, then we have nothing to worry about because you would have already seen this in your inbox and it has all the info. So let's move into our space history. Oh, real quick. Moon phase, April 1st at 6.24 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time was when it reached new moon. So it was totally, totally dark. And now it's growing. So it's going into crescent phase and then waxing crescent and then a first quarter. So the moon is currently uh, becoming more luminous or more of its surface is showing. Okay. In space history, on April 4th in 1960, Project Ozma was initiated. Ozma, you guys might want to look this up if you're interested in aliens. Its focus was on finding extraterrestrial intelligence. So it is a giant radio dish project. Uh, so using uh, radio, giant radio dishes, uh, the thought here is if any type of civilization is trying to communicate with us, they would communicate via radio waves. They are very, very long waves, wavelengths. They can travel at great distances. Um, and so because of this, it is uh, understood and, and most of the projects that were proposed for like for SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, were mainly used uh, technology based around like radio dishes. Uh, you also had the very large array in New Mexico. And there are tons of different observatories you can look around for that use radio dishes. Um, Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico was also a giant radio dish, although it did collapse right when it was announced that it was going to be decommissioned. Um, just a little bit sad. A little bit of a bummer there because uh, it was really, really big. And then on April 4th in 1968 was the launch of Apollo 6. If you remember, the first crewed mission for the Apollo missions were Apollo 11, uh, or Apollo 11 was what brought people to the moon, excuse me. But Apollo 6 was actually the final uncrewed test flight of the Saturn V rocket. Um, so this was the very final test flight to make sure that the Saturn V rocket is good to go, that it is performing nominally, it is operational. Um, and, you know, this, this is typically what is done usually for testing out uh, not just the space capsule, so the, like the Apollo command module, but also the rocket itself. You'll want to test it first without a crew on board. So that was um, April 4th, 1968, Apollo 6 launched. And then today, April 5th in 1973, NASA launched Pioneer 11. This was on board an Atlas Centaur rocket, and Pioneer 11 became the first spacecraft to fly by Saturn. This was in 1979. 
It took these amazing, amazing close-up images of the planet. You want to check them out. Remember the first time that close-up images of Saturn were ever taken. And it also became the second spacecraft to fly by Jupiter. And this was in 1974. Pioneer 11, if you want to go ahead and check out the Saturn images, I am pulling them up right now in front of me. And wow, imagine this coming back. I mean, right now we're looking at it. We've taken much better images with the Hubble Space Telescope and the Cassini mission. But to sort of look at this and, um, you know, imagine that this is the first time that people have uh, seen close-up images of Saturn taken, the rings, the kind of yellowish color, um, too, of, of the planet, which looks really cool, the bands that run across its atmosphere, um, pretty, pretty neat. So if you want to go ahead and check that out, be my guest. Alrighty, and our final space event was also today, April 5th in 1772. Charles Messier discovered M50, the open star cluster in the constellation Monoceros. So that being said, let's go ahead and see if we can catch uh, the open star cluster in Monoceros. See if we can catch this right now. Um, okay, looks like it was visible during, um, let's see. So if you want to ever kind of check this out, I just found a really great star ch uh, sky chart on Astronomy Magazine's website. And it shows all of these different deep sky objects. Uh, and then it shows you which constellation you're in, what main stars are nearby. And so uh, if you wanted to go ahead and check out this open star cluster in Bonaceros, you can do that as well. Um, the, this was published back in 2016. This was during uh, January to February. So not quite sure if these are targets for now, uh, for this time. However, you might be able to still see it if you have a really, really good telescope. I bet my unistellar telescope would be able to image this because it's able to see things very, very far away. Uh, it's a really, really cool open star cluster. I think it just looks beautiful. Star clusters, either way, are always very brilliant looking uh, because of, obviously, like the, the luminosity of these stars, the twinkling of them. So capturing any type of image is always really fun. Um, so if you guys have ever done any type of astrophotography, I recommend it. And maybe you can go ahead and print out your poster or your image and hang it up somewhere. Alrighty. Let's see. Okay. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, just got a comment here from Joshua. Uh, I'll come with 137 because it's a pure number. I'm not quite sure what I mentioned 137, but that's pretty cool. You're saying whatever units they have for change or speed and whatever their version of Planck's constant may be, we all come up with 137 because it's a pure number. Very, very cool. I'm going to look back. Maybe I did mention that in something, but that is super awesome. Um, I think that, yeah, numbers are a really interesting game uh, or could be an interesting game. Numbers alone are just uh, very fascinating um, how you can, the more you can learn about math, the more you're able to sort of see patterns and, and how sort of 
uh, different numbers will start to come up quite frequently, uh, such as like uh, a recurring frequency of like, you know, 432 hertz is called like the universal uh, frequency because it's something that tends to come up quite a lot in nature and various different um, types of, of sound that's created, whether it's through insects or birds or it's a type of, uh, type of pattern or um, lots of cool things, more, more stuff that I, I don't know necessarily, but I think is really cool. Last but not least, astronomy picture of the day. So, um, oh, it's the number we would figure aliens would recognize. Copy that, copy that. Um, yeah, that's an really interesting thing too, of why mathematics is so important because it is essentially a universal language. And so if, uh, you know, we ever have to communicate, obviously, with even our fellow humans here on Earth, um, if we don't speak each other's language, mathematics, computer science, these are things that uh, you can still have full conversations and it's, uh, you know, universally recognized. Uh, even, I guess, some, I think that there is some training being done with a chimpanzee and teaching them mathematics, but I'm not quite sure of how far that got. Uh, but other than that, I'm not too sure if I could teach my, my cat math. Um, but otherwise, alien civilizations, yes, we would think that they would probably be able to to recognize that. So um, let's see, for our astronomy picture of the day, it's a really great image, which I feel like I always say every time there's an apod. So we've got the Pleiades star cluster, super, super brilliant and blue looking, the baby eagle nebula. The California Nebula, which I didn't really know much about. I'm going to go ahead and just click on that. And then the IC138 star-forming region, also a nebula. And this is the Seven Sisters versus California is the title of this. And the upper right, dressed in blue, is the Pleiades, also known as the Seven Sisters, and M45. The Pleiades is one of the brightest and most easily visible open star clusters in the sky. The Pleiades contains over 3,000 stars. Wow. Okay. I was uh, totally thought that there was, there was only uh, several hundred and that the most you could see were the seven most bright stars, seven to seven to ten. If you really have a good telescope, you could see like more of it, obviously. But with the unaided eye, is about seven. But 3,000 stars. Woof. Okay. It's about 400 light years away and only 13 light years across. Surrounding the stars is a spectacular blue reflection nebula made of fine dust. A common legend is that one of the brighter stars faded since the cluster was named. On the lower left, shining in red, is the California Nebula. Named for its shape, it looks like the state of California. The California Nebula is much dimmer and hence harder to see than the Pleiades, also known as NGC 1499. This mass of red glowing hydrogen gas is about 1,500 light years away, although about 25 full moons, 25 full moons can fit between them. So between the Pleiades and the California Nebula. And in this image, uh, we finish up the sentence right here, the featured wide angle deep field image composite has captured them both. A careful, a careful inspection of the deep image will also reveal the star-forming region IC348 and the molecular cloud LBN777, known as the Eagle Nebula. Now, the reason uh, I was looking at this and, and saw a star-forming region and just assumed it was a nebula is because most nebulae are um, 
where stars will conform. Uh, I think most star-forming regions tend to be around nebulae just because of all that molecular gas, all the right elements that are needed. Um, I've, you've probably heard me say this so many times, but all the right elements that are needed to form new star life. So that is that. Alrighty, so that is about everything that I had prepped for today to chat with you guys about. Um, so a few announcements. Uh, we've got Adara coming on this Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I'm so excited. So special guest Adara, she's going to be on at 3 p.m. Uh, she's a pop electronic music uh, musician, uh, pop singer, uh, composes her own music as well has a huge aspiration and passion for space um, that actually comes, I believe it was her father who actually had worked for NASA or her grandfather. And so that was a huge inspiration. We'll hear more about her story in the interview, but she is also just a really good friend of mine. We had met originally on Instagram and then we met in person at New York Fashion Week, um, which is really cool. So she has so much to share, not only about her love for science fiction, but also the importance of, um, kind of that the role that music would play and the role that science fiction would play for the evolution of humanity, uh, the way we connect with each other, the way we evolve, the way we create new technology, new science, uh, better understandings of the universe. And she has such, every time I talk to her, such a great um, perspective, point of view, uh, really great philosophical conversations I tend to have with her as well. So I'm really, really excited for that interview. Um, so I will make sure to announce it a couple more times. Um, and I will schedule also an episode for tomorrow. We've got to go ahead and do some of our usual. We haven't done historical figures in a while. So I'm going to go ahead and put that in right now. Historical figures. If you have any recommendations, go ahead and type that in the chat. Historical figures. This will be tomorrow at 3 p.m. Central time. I'm literally scheduling this as we speak. Um, and... Yeah, otherwise I'm going to end up probably choosing, um, you know, someone that we've talked about several times, um, but we haven't really dove in deep yet with their with their history. There are just so many incredible scientists, researchers, uh, communicators, communicators. I'm going to talk about Carl Sagan. That's who I'm going to talk about. Oh my gosh, who is excited to talk about Carl Sagan? Um, we're going to kind of dive in deep with... Carl Sagan's history and uh, his contributions to not just astrophysics, but to speaking to people about this, to how he is a wonderful communicator um, and how that that has really impacted globally our perspective of our species. I think we really started to sort of look inward and look more at like kind of what's going on around our planet as opposed to sort of just this sort of tunnel vision with our society and economy and everything like that, and our buildings, but to sort of have a little bit more of this overall view and understanding of our earth. Um, Carl Sagan has so much brilliance to share. And so we're going to be, we're going to be chatting about him tomorrow. And just for fun, I'm going to go ahead and put on Carl Sagan's pale blue dot momentary speech. Not seem of any particular interest. Let's start this again. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. 
That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father. So he goes on to sort of list all of these different kinds of uh, people we would have encountered in our life. Um, you know, whether it's just, you know, you and me, like, you know, whether we're, you know, students or parents or, you know, daughters and, and sons, um, but also to like all the different, uh, roles that we kind of play in society. So he mentions religions, he mentions doctors, uh, and you know, uh, all of these different kind of things that we've created in our reality as humans, and then brings us to sort of realize that everything that we thought was like literally our whole world is in fact just this small world in the grander scale of a massive, massive universe. Um, and what's funny because we can think that our world is like in a way our universe because it's everything. It's everything we know. It's our favorite food, our um, you know, favorite type of weather, our, you know, all this different stuff that we prefer in our life. Um, and that's all just here on this really, really small uh, thing that kind of just formed, uh, you know, by the right conditions being there and happening and and you know most likely this was by chance and uh and the reason i say most likely is i I just think that maybe um not that there's any room for 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 this being like planned or anything like that because i'm not too much of, of a religious person but i do think that um until we start to find other civilizations that are like us uh then we'll we'll be able to say okay it's uncom it's you know it's common it's not that it's, but right now it's uncommon to, to have uh, planetary bodies with a civilization that has not only existed and lived, but evolved to become conscious and intelligent and aware. And so um, until I think we can find that, it's, it's pretty um, uncommon right now. And I do think that it exists. I, I, I don't think that we're the only ones, but um, it's just an interesting thought to sort of think about. So anyway, so we'll, we'll get into the Carl Sagan philosophy and, and Carl Sagan tomorrow uh, and, and everything that he's contributed. So I'm really excited for that. Um, so I hope you guys tune in. That'll be at 3 p.m. Central Time tomorrow on April 6th on Space Talk. Alrighty, everyone, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day that you get to get outside, check out some of these stargazing events. And until next time, add Astra.